morning and turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. And this morning we're looking at what is eternal life. What is eternal life? Now John chapter 17 is the Lord's high priestly prayer. Uh, We began last Sunday night. A number of you were not able to be here. Uh, It was kind of stormy last Sunday, and I think there were going to be some more storms. And so some stayed away last Sunday night. But we did an overview, uh, kind of a look at the whole chapter. uh, And we mentioned now that uh, we're going to be probably in this chapter for a a number of weeks. And uh, so uh, we're just going to get started with it here this morning. And... uh, Someone has uh, stated concerning this particular chapter, all that is peculiar and wonderful in Christianity is here. I believe that person hit upon a marvelous truth that God's great riches to us in Christ are found unfolded on our Lord's high priestly prayer. Now in John 17, we find concise explanation of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. We talk about the uh, God's wonderful grace, the security of our salvation, the manifold work of sanctification. And it's kind of a mini-course, if you please, of New Testament Christianity. And chief among God's gifts to us through Christ is eternal life. And here we do not uh, so much see a definition of eternal life as a description of it. And just as a definition of physical life as a living being cannot aptly uh, define life, so this text offers us more of a vivid picture of eternal life rather than a sterile definition of it. I think it's important that we have a good understanding of eternal life And then this is for at least two reasons. So first of all, uh, we can know what we possess, that we possess this gift of God ourselves. And secondly, so we can walk in the fullness of this life from God. So many people today have a distorted view of what it means to be a Christian. You ask the typical person on the street uh, to describe a Christian to you, and you might get anything from, well, that's an American citizen. Uh, Or you might, that's a very religious person. Uh, Or you might find them saying, that's a good moral person. Or someone might even say, well, it's a dull, lifeless person. See, none of those describe true Christianity. Now, Jesus used the word life to describe himself and what he gives to those who he redeems. He said back in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In John chapter 5, he said, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. In John chapter 11, we've already seen how he said in, uh, in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. To he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And when we begin to describe the Christ, uh, Christian life, we must not think of it as in organizational terms, but organic terms. It's life. It's life in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now that's why our text is so very important to understand. Uh, for it is in Jesus Christ where we find described for us eternal life as he prays to his Father. 
And I think the greatest need for any person has is the need for eternal life through Jesus Christ. Our greatest need is not to have a wonderful moral life or enjoyable religious experiences or good feelings about ourselves. Our great need is eternal life. And the question is, do you have eternal life this morning? Now, through Jesus Christ, we have eternal life in all that's, its glorious dimensions. And so what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means a gift of God through Jesus Christ. Now, I think we need to be clear in our minds that eternal life is not manufactured by human imagination, or it, nor is it something that we can ourselves earn. So many people think that good deeds they work uh, will merit them eternal life. I read about a college student who uh, went to a uh, rather liberal college, I think, uh, because he had a Jesuit priest for a teacher. And so he gave this Jesuit priest a booklet that his pastor had written entitled Way to Life. And the teacher wrote a letter to the student in response to it, essentially denying the saving work of Christ at the cross, denying faith alone in Jesus Christ. Instead, he opted for a life of charity, a life of good works as a way to salvation. You know what? The, what the uh, priest believed, what this teacher believed, is not uncommon. The Apostle Paul wrote, The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23 The gift of God continually gets bypassed for the merits of sinful man. And that merit is worthy only of eternal death. Now I want you to notice this gift, first of all, is priceless in its cost. And I would emphasize to you that eternal life is a gift, but it's not a cheap one. I'm sorry, guys, but I don't have expensive gifts for you this morning. You fathers, uh, they're, they're rather inexpensive. I wish I could get you, every one of you a, a nice craftsman or maybe a Black & Decker a skill saw or maybe even a whole table saw. That would be great, you know, if I could just do that. Or maybe, maybe something would be uh, a new sports car. Uh, you know, that would be a great... No, and then you start saying, well, you sound like Oprah now. Um, wouldn't that be wonderful? But you know what? I could think of the most expensive gift to give you for Father's Day, and it still would not hold a candle to this gift. Amen. This gift was not bought at the bargain counters of the world with money. The gift of God is priceless. It's worth in its worth and it's priceless in its cost. And we can see this clearly in Jesus' opening words. In John 17, it says, Father, the hour is come. Now, you may recall as we've been going through the book of John Jesus has said just the opposite numbers of times. He said, my hour has not yet come. And by this he meant the time of his becoming sin on our behalf and enduring the wrath of God for us at the cross had not yet arrived. The word for hour is used in this case as a point in time, a a particular event, the cross, followed by the resurrection and the ascension. 
Now Jesus focuses upon the hour before him. And after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus told his disciples that the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He expressed his soul uh, anguish in uh, uh, the words, uh, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this cause came I into this hour. Father, glorify thy name. And then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. You see, here we see the wonders of the divine will unfolded for the redemption of God's children. The counsel of the Godhead before the world where the worlds were created came, comes to its great climactic point in human history. The God-man, Jesus Christ, receives in his own body the judgment and the wrath of God towards sinners. At the cross, the wrath of a thrice holy God levels his holy justice upon his own spotless, blameless Son, so that those at enmity with him might be brought to a right relationship with him. Father, the hour has come. That was an hour of our redemption. It was there at the cross where divine justice and human sinfulness collided with the shredding, uh, the shedding of uh, priceless blood of Christ in his atoning dead, death. And all that was necessary to save sinners was paid at the cross. And that's why I hope you could sing with us, I stand redeemed. I stand redeemed. Jesus declared, it is finished. Paid in full. And so we say amen to the work of the cross. So we see the gift of God through Christ is priceless in its cost, but also it's particular in its distribution. The hour has come for a purpose. And that purpose is to accomplish God's redemptive work so that he might give eternal life. Eternal life is not something we give as a church. I can't give you eternal life as a gift this morning, men. That's not something we give as a church. It's the gift of God. It's bestowed according to his pleasure, his authority. And Jesus speaks of this divine authority by bestowing or distributing the gift of eternal life. And he begins by referring to his pre-incarnate authority, which was his before the foundation of the world. And you find here in verse 2, three uses of the word give. All referring to an idea of giving something as a gift. First he says, as thou hast given... Him power over all flesh. That's the first use. And God Father, God the Father gave His Son authority or absolute power over humanity. And this is what we call the sovereignty of Jesus Christ over humanity. It's the authority that certainly should be His by virtue of Him being God. But this verse points out something more specific. Now, that is that the Father Himself gave Jesus sovereign authority over mankind. It was on the basis of the Son's perspective, obedient humiliation, death, resurrection, and exaltation. It's nothing less than the redemptive plan of God. And then that brings us to the next use of the word give. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life. 
The first use of give is a simple statement of something that took place before creation. God gave all mankind to the Son to be His under His sovereign authority. This means that all of humanity has a responsibility to obey Jesus Christ and bow the knee to His authority. But you know, we know that due to the depravity of man's hearts, they will not do this apart from a divine work of regeneration. And so the next use of give points to an act by the Father which has a distinction and permanency to it. And I understand that the grammar construction here is used to distinguish this giving from the two other usages of give. The Father's gift to the Son is a gift of a people who will be redeemed and sanctified to the conformed image of Jesus Christ. To as many as thou hast given him. This is a gift by which the Son is glorified in His death and His resurrection, since it's through His own sacrifice that these people are given new life and new nature, and they'll be like Christ. Now, I pointed out in our introduction last Sunday night to this prayer that it's a chiefly mediatorial prayer. That is, it expresses the work of Jesus Christ as our mediator, and his threefold office of prophet, priest, and king are exercised as our mediator before God. His mediation was not for potential redemption. It was not shedding of his blood to give man the potential to be saved. But it was an actual death for actual sinners to bring them into an actual redemption. You might ask, well, what is the value of knowing that? Well, if you know that, that Jesus actually died for you, then you can have confidence before God and assurance of eternity, eternal life. Now, our responsibility is not to try to decide who the children of God are, but our responsibility is to proclaim and give out the good news of the gospel to whosoever will, will may come. Personally, we have our assurance of salvation in knowing that Jesus' death was an actual death for us on the cross to save us. And we need to be thankful, as Paul said, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Secondly, this morning, I relate, this is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's what eternal life is. It's a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We notice Jesus further exclaims this gift in verse 3. He says, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. The emphasis of the word know here is not something of mere knowledge of facts. We could never undervalue knowing facts and truths about God. And yet there's, that's not the ultimate objective in eternal life. Instead, it's a knowledge that is best described as a relationship. And we see, first of all, it's an identifiable relationship. Jesus tells us this relationship is with the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. In other words, when we truly receive eternal life as God's gracious gift to us, then we enter into a genuine relationship with the members of the Godhead. Now, We don't want to misunderstand this and think that it's just a philosophical statement. No, our Lord states very clearly that our relationship is with the only true God. 
And what an amazing statement this is. We who are sinners, who are at enmity with God, are now by the gift of God brought into a relationship with the true God. This God who is holy and cannot look upon sin. This God who is just so that he will by no means clear the guilty. This God who is righteous so that he alone upholds his perfect law brings us into a relationship to him. And he affirms this relationship with Jesus Christ, our mediator as well. The emphasis is upon the fact that Jesus has been sent to us. Again, the word used here for sent implies that Jesus came as a personal authoritative representative of the Godhead. An angel did not come. We sang about that moments ago, how the angels cannot praise God like you and I can. He didn't send an angel, but he sent his son. The son himself came. The person, Jesus Christ, the God-man, was therefore able to suffer and bear the penalty of man's transgression because of being of man's nature, he could become man's representative. could endure the suffering. And him being God, he could give value to that suffering. It was this great God, the only true and living God, that we enter into a relationship. But we also must see that it's not just a formal relationship or merely a relationship on paper, but it's an intimate relationship. And this is life eternal that they might know thee. The word know means that our knowledge of him continues and continues. Uh, He's referring to a personal intimate relationship with the living God which grows as the years press on. Does Does not mean we know about God, but we know God. It's an experiential knowledge of God. It's a subject, subjective experience of God grounded in objective truth concerning God, which he has given to us in his word. And this intimate relationship develops our trust, our obedience, our worship, our prayer, our uh, meditation, and our study in the word, our contemplation of God. And I think we need to realize that we're on holy ground with this kind of thinking for the living God has affected our redemption so that we might be brought into this kind of relationship with him. It's an intimate relationship. Certainly there are ways in which we think, well, if I just know about God and I know a lot of Uh, passages of Scripture, I know a lot of facts about Him, that's enough. No, it's got to be knowing God. And we have to have a deep relationship with Him. Even as the hymn writer said, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow Thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken, Thou from hence my all shalt be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought and hoped and known. Yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. It's a relationship with God. And then thirdly, it's a life with God through Jesus Christ. Now Jesus called our relationship to him this thing we term Christianity. 
He called this relationship eternal life. He said, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And eternal life is two-dimensional. First, it's a full life. The idea of eternal uh, life does not mean referring to one day going to heaven. Yes, it includes that, but Jesus spoke of eternal life as a present reality. He said, this is life eternal. He did not say, this shall be life eternal. Now, there is much more to come, indeed. But there is so much right now, if we would just stay awake every day for a thousand years, we could not begin to fathom the depths of eternal life. Eternal life demands that we see our relationship to Christ in terms of reality. A life of fullness. He said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly in John 10.10. Paul had something of of this in mind when he expressed it in his prayer for the Ephesian believers in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, where he said, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God, now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. See, the essence of this is that eternal life Jesus Christ is giving is something of his life which he experienced in perfect fullness while he was here upon earth. Now, he lived as a man in dependence upon and delight in the Father. The same joy and peace in life which he spoke of is that the same fullness that he gives to you and me. That Grace, that faithfulness, that gratitude he lived out in the face of suffering, he gives to us as we face the demands of life. John wrote, And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. You see, his continual supply of divine grace, he gives us more and more of his glorious life and his fullness. He's bringing some of heaven into our own souls that we might have a foretaste of the glories ahead. Listen, we really cannot make it in this life without his life being imparted in us day by day. Apart from him, we will find ourselves wrapped in self-dependence, clinging to vain hopes of this world, desiring those things that cannot satisfy, chasing after the wind of futile dreams, You think of many terms which describe the life we have and the relationship we enjoy with Christ. Think of it. We're called sons of God. We're called born of God. We're called born of the Spirit. We're partakers of the divine nature. Uh, He's begotten us again. 
All of these terms describe something that overflows with life and fullness. And we have not simply just made a decision. We have not just prayed a prayer. But we've been given new nature, a new life, a new desire, a new character, a new delights. And all of that through the gift of God in Jesus Christ. It's not only a full life, but secondly, it's an enduring life. Eternal life does not only have the idea of quality, but quantity or duration. Eternal life implies that God has started what He has started. He will never stop. The blessed hope of the child of God is that though we face untold ills and troubles and difficulties in this world, life is not over for us. Now our bodies may become racked with pain or disease, but life is not over. Our life does not consist simply of 70, 80, 90 years as we walk on this earth. We're going to go on forever in the presence of our Lord. Jesus gets to the point to this point toward the end of this high priestly prayer down in verse 24 where he says, "Father, I will that they also which whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Someone might ask, well, pastor, what is heaven like? I could only fumble around for a while to try to describe it to you. The one thing I do know about heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be there. And he's going to be there in all of his glory. And I'm going to behold him in, that, for, in his glory for all eternity. Now we may grapple with the limitations of our human vocabulary as it, uh, we try to describe heaven. And John uses a lot of uh, ways to try to describe it in the book of Revelation. He uses words like, it is like, it is like. Similes, metaphors. And one day the similes will be gone and we will see the magnificent in person, face to face. Now, I have to admit that often I'm grieved, as one preacher put it, for the hootenanny ideas of heaven. <laughs> There's some weird ideas out there what heaven might be like. And some of it's put out forth in what's called gospel music. But some of them have a man-centered, worldly view of heaven. Listen, whatever heaven is like, you can guarantee that it's the most God-centered, God-glorifying, God-consuming, God-honoring, God-focused place in eternal existence. God's throne is at the center of it. The Father and the Son are going to illuminate it with their glory. And we're going to see him as he is. We're not going to be floating around like some cartoon character. Having conversations with St. Peter at the gate and so forth. We're going to have bodies that are fitted for glory. Just as the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was. We're going to bear the glorious image of Jesus Christ upon us forever. And so the most important question that I ask you this morning in light of what we've just looked at 
is do you have eternal life? I did not ask if you will one day have it. Do you right now at this very moment have eternal life abiding in you? Do you have eternal life? To have eternal life is to be synonymous with saying that Jesus Christ dwells within you. Listen, if you do not have that assurance, then I exhort you to seek the Lord this day. Admit to Him your desperate need for Him. Admit to Him you need His forgiveness. Lay aside your self-seeking, your self-dependence, and rest in the merits of Jesus Christ who died for you and rose from the grave to give you eternal life. And Christian, listen, in in light of our Lord's words, can you live with one foot in the things of this world and one treading upon the threshold of glory? We need to repent of the sins that he has exposed in our hearts and lives and let us find our greatest delights in simply knowing him. Now, Last Sunday night, I left those of you that were here with a challenge, and I want to leave that same challenge to you this morning. As I said, we are going to be in this chapter for a while. Read the chapter each week. It's going to be for about 10 or 12 weeks. Read the same chapter every week. You say, well, that might get kind of boring. No, I think you'll find some new truths and some new understanding as we go through it together. And then pray for this preacher. I might clearly examine my own heart as I study, and I might proclaim this text with authority. And then pray for us as a church body. We might see his the incredible unity of our Lord given to us, and we can walk in it faithfully as a testimony to His grace. And I challenge you to do that as we look at this wonderful chapter of, of John chapter 17. Let's bow in prayer.